So, uh, Methodist was not always a, uh, a positive term. Um, the first Methodists, uh, John Charles Wesley and George Whitfield and uh, Koch and the other people there um, as part of the, uh, the, the group that met at Oxford, um, they were called Methodists by people who were making fun of them. Because most of uh, the Anglicans there at school uh, thought that you just kind of naturally grew in faith and grew in righteousness and grew into the person who God wanted you to become. But for the Methodists, they said, no, there's a way of being. There's a fervency. There is, uh, there's an effort. There is a desire that is necessary for us to grow and blossom into everything that God desires for us to be. So part of that method we talked about last week, um, this meeting together in smaller groups of accountable discipleship to help one another and hold up one another and uh, pray for one another so that we have some accountability in growing um, into the people who God has made us to be. And um, today we're going to talk about uh, one of the, another one of these methods um, that the early Methodists and Methodists throughout time and space have used to gather together and to understand what it is to live the life of faith. And it is called the general rules, which sounds really exciting, right? General rules, about as nondescript as humanly possible. But the general rules are to do no harm, to do good, and to attend upon the ordinances of God. Now, the first two sound simple, but are uh, a little more difficult than they sound like. And the third one sounds very complicated, but it's far more simple than it sounds. Once again, um, our forebears really knew how to throw a party um, and, and today we will be talking about these, these three general rules. So the first one, do no harm. We are going to be uh, in the book of James uh, today, chapter 3. And we're going to specifically think about um, the harm that can come from our words. So if you'll uh, grab your Bible and read along with me, we are in James chapter 3. And James writes... Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they are large, they are driven by strong winds. They are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is also a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue is also a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself on fire by hell. <clears throat> All kinds of animals, 
birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. So have any of you... um, ever found yourselves saying something that you don't really believe, but saying it because you know it will be particularly hurtful to the person who you're mad at and want to say something to really get them? All right, I'm glad I'm not alone in this. Or uh, or, or maybe even um, in in times of, of... tension and frustration. Uh, You say things that you know are true, but you know you are saying it in the least kind way possible. All right, I'm glad that I'm not alone in this. Um, James is describing a reality that we all know too well, that Uh, The whole nursery rhyme, sticks and stones can break my bones, but words can never hurt me, is a bunch of malarkey. Um, It's not true. The reality is that our words carry with them extreme weight in the lives of those who hear them. I I have a friend who is telling me about... um, the difficulty they had growing up because their parents said such mean and hurtful things that they had no idea what their potential was because their parents had set the expectation so low. So they finally moved out of the, out of the house and, and discovered they were actually pretty smart. They were actually pretty capable. That, that, that they weren't the losers that their parents had led them to believe they were. The way we use our tongue, the way we talk to people, especially those who we are close to, is super duper important. Because it can give life or it can take it away. And for the people called Methodists, um, the Wesleys understood that chief amongst learning to live in a way that is Christian is learning how to live in a way that is not tearing other people down, that is not harming them, that is not bringing destruction. You know, part of this, I think, um, is that uh, John Wesley was really interested in medicine. Um, Most people don't know this, but uh, the book that he wrote that actually sold the best during his lifetime was a medical journal. 
Um, his preachers would take them around because part of that, that Methodist identity was that it wasn't just about uh, bringing about spiritual health, but also physical health in the lives of, of the people who came to be a part of Methodist societies. And the first rule of the uh, Hippocratic Oath is also, do no harm. Do no harm comes before do good. And for us, part of what we understand about our identity is that one of the ways that God is shaping us and forming us and transforming us is to help us control our tongue, to control our behavior, to control the way we treat both ourselves and others. Because it's, it's, it's easy for us to look and see the way that our sin can have a destructive impact on the lives of others. But sometimes we fail to see the ripple effect of the, destruct, of the destructive impact of sin on our own lives. There are, um, there are no victimless crimes, as you may say, when it comes to the life of faith. This is why the goal of Methodism is to be perfected in love. The goal is to be, uh, on a daily basis, transformed to be a little bit more like Jesus. Because with our tongue we can build someone up or we can tear them down. With our actions, we can encourage others or we can utterly discourage them. So this, this first general rule for us as Methodist-type people is to do no harm. Is to live in such a way that we aren't hurting others. Now, this, um, if we aren't careful, this can lead us to dig a hole, climb in it, and just try to never interact with anyone ever. Because it's easy to accidentally hurt people. Like we, we've experienced this in our lives. You know, there's a reason why in Matthew 18, uh, Jesus says the first thing to do when someone hurts you is to go to them and tell them about it. Because guess what? Oftentimes we hurt people and don't even realize we've done it. But it's that first opportunity to be reconciled, to understand that the actions that we did without someone else even in mind had an impact on them. So we learn how to live a life of greater awareness. You know, one of the fun things about watching my boys grow up is um, that when they were little, their world was them. Right? I am hungry. I'm tired. My diaper's dirty. Everything revolved. Yeah, it revolved around you, kid. But as they've gotten older, they've been able to see, well, no, I, I, I have 
needs and desires, but so do my brothers. Uh, so do my parents. Uh, part of growing in maturity is being able to understand that, that we live in an interconnected world with one another and that we can live in such a way that, that the decisions we make, we begin to comprehend how they are going to ripple out and affect others. So the first general rule at its very most basic is this, this idea that, that as we grow and mature, as we are transformed more into the image of Jesus, we're going to become more capable of living lives that are not purely self-centered, but lives that understand the impact that what we do, that impact, what it is on other people. So the first general rule was do no harm. The second general rule, do good. Do all the good you can to all the people you can and all the places you can for as long as you can. Which sounds like a lot. But, uh, and I think Pastor Serena's image was perfect, um, this is... This is part of what God does in our lives to transform us and make us more like Him. It is not something we have to uh, create on our own out of the force of our own sheer will, uh, but it is the grace of God working in our lives. Our second uh, scripture today comes from First Timothy, First Timothy, First Timothy, chapter six. And Paul writes, But you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In the sight of God who gives life to everything and of Christ Jesus, who while testifying before Pontius Pilate, made the good confession, I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring about in his own time, God the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to him be honor and might forever. Amen. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Timothy Guard what has been entrusted to your care. Turn away from godless chatter and the opposing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and in so doing have departed from the faith. Grace be with you all. Paul writes to Timothy, and in, in, uh, at the beginning of this chapter, he is talking about uh, godlessness and these these things that are outside uh, the realm of the kingdom, these things that he is to flee from. And then he says, flee from this and pursue righteousness. 
Pursue goodness, pursue godliness and faith. We do no harm and we do good, and these two things are in some ways two sides of the same coin. My, uh, so I grew up in Union County, and uh, in Union County, the most important thing about a person is what their lawn looks like. It's like the O.M. Scott's company has a deep, deep impression on us. Um, so, you know, like, uh, we all know what it takes to have a green lawn, right? The, the way to put down fertilizer and when, um, you know, crabgrass preventer. Now, now I, I can't speak for the people who've, you know, moved to town recently, like they're outsiders, right? But for those of us who, who are from Union County, we understand that, the, the, that your lawn says a lot about you. And something that we all know is that the best way to keep weeds out of your lawn is to make sure the grass is healthy. It's a lot easier to kill weeds that never start than to kill and replace the ones that are there. If you have a lawn that is lush with beautiful fescue and bluegrass, the crabgrass isn't welcome there. But if you have a patchy lawn, that's the lawn where you need to worry about weeds. Wesley understood this. That part of the strategy to not hurt others was to actively do good. Was to actively be looking for ways to be a blessing in the lives of others. To actively be looking for opportunities to share the truth with others. And by God's grace, this is something that, uh, that at the beginning we have to be really, really focused and intentional on each and every time. But then as time goes on, as God's transforming power works its way through us more and more, uh, you start seeing mature, older Christians doing good and not even thinking about it. Goodness has become a part of them. Um, I am married to one of these goodness has become a part of them people. So we were, we were at dinner a, a couple weeks back. And as we're leaving the restaurant, um, a young guy approaches Cindy and says, says, I'm hungry. And there was no hesitation, no let me think about it. You know, she just left the rest of us outside the restaurant, took the guy inside, bought him a few tacos, and, and that was it. And it's like... Huh. Would you look at that? Like, goodness is something that can become part of our character. It's not uh, something that, that we fight time and time again to be able to will ourselves to getting there. The desire of God is that goodness will become part of our character. It's part of putting our trust in God so that it's not us figuring out how to be good time and time and time again, but that God through us is continually choosing goodness. But nobody wants to be a goody two-shoes, right? They're annoying. They're annoying. 
they're annoying, right? Like, like nobody wants two shoes. Like, like you don't hardly like when I'm around people who who are trying too hard. It's just you know, it's it's just a little bit icky. But true goodness, like when you're around someone who is truly good, uh, and who who is living a life where where part of their character is the goodness that is given by God. It, it is, it's infectious. I, like, you can't help but want to be around them. And this is part of what God wants to give us. This is, this is part of what we are, as Methodist-type people, seeking to uh, to, to see happen within our lives that God is going to transform us to the point where goodness is part of our character. In verse 17, Paul says, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides. Command them to, be, to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. The reason why, as Christians, we choose to be generous is because this is part of that transforming process. Part of, part of what the decision to be generous in doing, or part of what that decision to be generous does, is it helps us to trust in God's provision so that goodness can permeate in our lives and we don't get anxious when the opportunity to do good arises. Because if we've been stingy all week long and the opportunity comes up to bless someone, we are going to operate out of our stinginess mindset. We just are. Like that, that's the way humans are. Like 99% of the decisions we make are automatic. We don't think them through. There's no reason or rational thought. We just, we live in a certain way. And if we choose to live lives of stinginess, it becomes incredibly hard to do good for someone else. Because it's going to require something of us. Our time, our resources, our emotional energy, our physical energy. But if we get into the practice of living lives of generosity... And, you know, Paul is telling Timothy, command the rich to do good, um, you know, by, by the standards of Timothy's church, all of us would be the rich. I mean, like, you know, the average person in Timothy's church didn't have a car or land or, you know, more than one set of clothes, right? Like, like all of us are wealthy in, like, by these standards, but when we choose to do good, when we choose to do generous, when we choose to move out of this mindset of stinginess and into the mindset of generosity, it frees us up to live lives that give witness to the kingdom of God. That give witness to the reality that God will always provide. That we live in a world of provision, not in a world of scarcity. 
And it frees us to live lives of genuine goodness through the transforming power of Jesus. Our final scripture comes from Peter uh, chapter 1. And Peter writes that his divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us this very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness mutual affection, and to mutual affection love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins." Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. For if you do these things, you will never stumble, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Faith is a gift from God, freely given. Free, free, nothing. Nothing. Faith is given to us by God for nothing. The justification for our sins is won by Christ on the cross. There is nothing we can do. Nothing. It's given to us free. Free. Yours. Take it. Sanctification? Being made perfect in love, that, my friends, is costly. That's something that we have to be intentional about. That's something we need to be aware of in being on a path which has been before us if we want to achieve it. And this leads us to our third general rule, attend upon the ordinances of God. Now, when Wesley said attend upon the ordinances of God, what he meant by the ordinances of God were specifically prayer, study of Scripture, and... The idea was that if we were living lives of prayer, living lives where we studied Scripture, living lives where together we gathered at the Lord's table to be cleansed of unrighteousness, then we would find ourselves in this sanctifying pattern that helped us live lives that did no harm and did good. And the method and the tool which Wesley gives us, well, which God gives us, in which the early church participated in, but then we kind of lost for a while and Wesley brought back, and you know, then Methodism lost for a while, and we're trying to bring back now is the accountable discipleship group. Because when we come together, part of our time together is being able to, to hear the way God is moving through our study of the Scripture is moving through our prayer life. It is moving through our participation in wider gatherings of Christians. Like, 
accountable discipleship is such a big deal for us people called Methodists because we don't think that we have some sort of like theological golden ticket. Right? Like Methodism is really very much the same theologically as like Lutheranism and Anglicanism. Like there is very little that separates us. But the method is what we believe God has given us as a gift to the world to encourage fervent faith in Jesus Christ. This method of gathering together in groups of accountable discipleship where we can talk about what is happening in our prayer life, what God is saying to us as we pray, where we can talk about how the Holy Spirit is speaking to us through the Scriptures, where what happens in worship can be given greater context as we share with one another in conversation. So if, if you look at, at this life that, that, that God uh, lays out for us, that, that as Methodists we claim as our own, this life of, of greater goodness and of less harm and of, 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 of greater fulfillment, you know, the way we get on that track is through participation in accountable discipleship groups. So if you aren't part of a group, uh, I encourage you to come tonight at 6. We started a, a new group uh, last week, but I mean, we've only been there one week. We can invite new people in yet. So, um, you know, if, 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 uh, if this is what you want, if you want a life that, um, that Jesus takes a higher priority in, the way we do this as Methodist-type people is through accountable discipleship. Um, and I'll see you tonight at 6. Let's pray. Most holy and gracious Lord, we thank you for the love which you have shown in the grace that you freely give, that we do not come to faith on our own, but that it is a gift from you, that we do not justify ourselves from our sin, but that justification is a gift from you. And Lord, we thank you that you invite us into an act of cooperative grace where we work together to become more like your son, Jesus. Lord, we thank you for the gift of Methodism in the world, that it gives us this roadmap for becoming the sorts of people who look more and more like Jesus and who look more and more like who you've created us to be. Lord, give us the courage to embrace this kind of life. And we will give you the honor and the praise and the glory if you are worthy. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus, and the power of your Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's rise for our final hymn.